self-development with tactics. So, hello, welcome back to another episode of the Self-Development with Tactics podcast. And today we're going to go through another psychologytoday.com article, which is titled, Can a person be scared to death? And um, interesting, very, very interesting, just because I believe in, uh, well, in the power of the mind and not in the woo-woo kind of bullshit self-development kind of thing, but more in terms of health. You know, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling alone, when you're feeling just whatever negative feeling that it is also potentially gonna influence your body and gonna influence your, uh, yeah, your physical appearance and your physical being, you know, of course, it's gonna fuck you mentally because it is something mental. And I'd also say the other way around, you know, I, when I'm ill, for example, truly ill, you know. I, I do often also feel depressed because I can't do whatever I want to do. I, um, well, I'm just kind of, um, I just don't feel good. Also mentally, when I'm feeling bad physically or ill physically. So I do think there is a heavy, 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 yeah, heavy, <laughs> heavy correlation between feeling good mentally and then also feeling good physically and also the negative part of it. So feeling bad physically and feeling bad mentally. So yeah, by Troy Ron Rodinon, PhD, the, maybe the author of Asylum or the owner of the Asylum, I don't. So is it possible to die of fright? A pop culture report. Posted May 5th, 2021. Can a person be scared to death? According to the American Heart Association, the answer is a very conditional yes. When a person is frightened badly enough, a blast of adrenaline shoots through the system and the heart pumps rapidly in an effort to get more blood to muscles. This can create physical shock that might, especially in people with pre-existing medical conditions, result in heart failure. But as cardiologist Vincent Buffalino explains, you can have a sudden, sudden cardiac-related event related to an adrenaline surge, but I think it would be a stretch to say you could get that from someone coming in a werewolf costume to your front door. How the fuck do you come up with this? <laughs> to be honest. Anyway, in 1938, Orson Welles reportedly scared someone to death. His Mercury Theater put on a performance of H.G. Uh, Wells' War of the Worlds on CBS Radio. Though prefaced with the announcement that this was a show and Wells' introduction clearly indicates that a story is about to be told, people tuning in late might have been fooled. They would have heard the sounds of an orchestra getting interrupted by increasingly horrific reports of invaders from space. Indeed, many listeners were swept up by a yarn. Some thought it was a real attack. While historians dismissed the idea that millions took to the streets in panic, some people did exit their homes in flight and according to one contemporary Washington Post report, a person dropped dead of a heart attack. Though, as Jefferson Poole and Michael J. Sokolow have noted, no one followed up to confirm the story or provide corroborative. I don't fucking know what this means, but 
details. In fiction, getting scared to death is more likely. In my study of asylums in popular culture, I encountered many instances of people experiencing great terror and then going insane, quote-unquote. Getting committed to mental institutions and occasionally fear alone was enough to kill. My very favorite version of this is an episode of The Twilight Zone, the quote-unquote grave, which aired in October 1961. A hired gun saunters into... what? A hired gun saunters, I think, into an old west bar determined to catch an outlaw named Pintus Kais, or Sykes. Zack, <laughs> played by Lee Marvin, Connie Miller is a gruff and tough bounty hunter in a duty, dusty, I'm sorry, overcoat and hat. But Miller is dismayed when he learns that his quarry has already been killed by the townsfolk. He spent the past four months tracking Sykes only to arrive a day late. Worse, he learns that Sykes on his deathbed had called him a coward. <laughs> very important notice, so very important. <laughs> um, fact or whatnot. So uh, things heat up when a bar patron challenges Miller to visit the Betty's grave and stab a knife into the dirt. Sykes had prophesied that he would reach up and grab Miller if he dared to visit him. Miller wants everyone to know that he is no coward. He takes the bet and heads out to the cemetery at midnight. You know, very important, at midnight. Not at night, not in the morning, but at midnight. Once at the cemetery, Miller meets the dead man's sister, who creepily tells him her brother is waiting for you. At the grave, he... Tented, what? Tentatively, tentatively, I guess, pokes the knife into the earth and then lifts it and stabs with full force. So just trying out things, you know. He begins to rise, but is yonked downward. The next day, the townsfolk visit the grave to find Miller still there. That is a doornail. Someone explains that Miller had caught his coat tail with his blade. The wind whipped it underneath and he then died of fright. <laughs> but Sykes' sister points out that the wind is blowing the wrong way. It seems Sykes had reached up and grabbed the coat himself. The tale told in the quote-unquote grave is older than the Twilight Zone. Versions of it have been in print for at least several decades, but it feels even older than that. However, in 1961, it had new urgency. Americans stood above their own potential grave. The world was at the brink of nuclear war. Children practiced ducking and covering under school desks literally five days before the grave aired. A standoff at the Berlin Wall saw American and Soviet tanks facing off, ready for battle, after an East German border guard tussled with an American official. The quote-unquote grave surely resonated, and not merely as a well-told scary story. Scary story. At, <laughs> at that dreadful moment in history, who would not see in the brush gun toting Connie Miller version of ourselves? A big, lutish giant, bristling with armaments, ar armaments, yet totally helpless in the face of impending annihilation. In a Cold War landscape of mutually assured destruction and attacked by one superpower would trigger the dead-handed retaliation from the utter ending everything. 
As in 1938, when Hitler was on the rise and the depression had yet to release its hold, in 1961, fear traveled far and wide, helped along by popular media. As Rod Serling might say, when looking up being scared to death, it's perhaps best to begin in the Twilight Zone. Well, thanks for the ad, motherfucker. Um, well written, gotta be honest. Well written by Troy Rondinon, PhD, professor of history at Southern Connecticut State University, is the author of Nightmare Factories, The Asylum in the American Imagination. Great, the more we know, you know. Now we know that, no, it doesn't work, but yes, it does work. <laughs> I actually don't know <laughs> what I've learned now, but who cares? It is what it is. You know? Where is the beauty in all this ugliness? Let's actually have a look at this article. Maybe we can find something. What is going on? We have to find it. By David B. Seaburn, PhD, LMFT. LMFT. Well, whatever this stands for, I don't know. I stood with my wife in a museum of modern art in New York with a group of other admirers, all of us mesmerized by the startling, swirling beauty of a Van Gogh's starry night. I stepped forward as close as possible to study the bold brush strokes, the thickly layered paint trying to imagine the darkness and the light, the tortured vision that created this beauty. In a letter to his brother Theo, or Theo actually, since it's Netherlandish. Anyway, Van Gogh wrote, This morning I saw the countryside from my window a long time before sunrise, with nothing but the morning star, which looked very big. The window from which he gazed was at the St. Paul Asylum, in, well, interesting, in the south of France, where he sought respite from years of emotional torment. Yeah, uh, he actually indeed was in therapy, but in the end, as people might know, or as you might know, he killed himself and he also cut off his ear. I mean, I think he shot himself, even though I guess... Well, are people sure that he actually killed himself? I am actually not quite sure. I think that... I do kind of have a feeling that there is a certain uh, um, discussion of whether it was actually himself or he was killed and whatnot. Like, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I think he killed himself period. Beauty from such suffering. While we looked on appreciatively at his masterpiece, we received two text messages, one from our son-in-law, the other from our niece. Both expressed concern about our welfare, both sought assurances that we were okay. Only then did we learn that three blocks away a 26-year-old man from Queens had driven his car onto a sidewalk near Times Square and plowed through crowds of unsuspecting t tourists, mowing them down like a combined harvester might mow a field of wheat, killing one, maiming almost two dozen more, and traumatizing countless others. Later we walked from our motel, two blocks away to Times Square, cordoned off by then as police investigated the attack. On the sidewalk were plastic markers, one, two, three, four, and so on. Beyond them, the man's car rested awkwardly, impaled on one of dozens of bullets installed to throughout truck bombers. Actually, indeed, looks strange anyway. It looked for 
I looked for the beauty in this ugly suffering, but I couldn't find none. Is there actually a point there? Because I have a little bit of a time concern here because my space might uh, be too less for too long of a recording, if this makes sense. And this, by the way, is amazing art. I appreciate it. I don't know why, but... Well, I'm gonna skip something. I don't know if it is important. All of this made me think of another striking sculpture we had seen at the Museum of Modern Art. It was an untitled piece by Lee Bodicu, an artist who lived in the East Village in the early 60s. She took a abandoned canvas from the laundry below her apartment and stretched and rolled it across steel coils, fastening it all together with metal and wire. It is both inviting and threatening its center a deep black hole she fashioned it in 1961 a year marked by intense anxiety the bay of pigs invasion cuba failed the u.s sent its first troops to vietnam and construction of the berlin wall began of her piece she said my concern is to build things that express our relations to this country to other countries to this world to other worlds to glimpse some fear hope ugliness, beauty and mystery that exists in us all and which hangs over all young people today. Uh, Boniku 31, when she created this sculpture, is 86 years old now. She could have written the same words today. We're living in a time that is just as anxiety-ridden as any other, perhaps more so. It is a time of fear and ugliness. Nooses on the floor of the American African-American Museum, swastikas on the walls of synagogues, Muslim women harassed and terrorized in subways and on trains, single-minded bombers willing to kill themselves and anyone else for ideologies of hatred and this and the coarse and toughless words spewed by leaders. No matter where, no matter what, no matter when, no matter the circumstance, it is our job to look through the ugliness, to rummage around inside it, to examine it until we are no longer afraid and can fashion from it something that is beautiful, not something that is pretty, not something that is a coat of fresh paint slapped on, de on the decay, but something beautiful, which is to say something excellent, something extraordinary, something noble, enduring, something that reaches into the depth of our shared humanity and draws out the light, the shining essence that can't be extinguished. By David B. Seaburn.